0: Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience research podcast. Today is Thursday, October 13th, and we're talking to Mel B. Feeney, professor in the Department of Pathology, Division of Neuropathology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School. Mel studies the genetics of neurodegeneration and uses the wildly successful fruit fly preparation to analyze the connections between genetics, cell biology, and disease phenotype. Actually, she does a wide variety of other interesting things as well, but I think that's what we're going to be talking about today. So welcome, Mel.
1: Thank you. Happy to be here.
0: Uh, with us, we have two UTSA experts on neurodegeneration, our own hong Lee. Hi. And Chris Gantler. Hi there. Mel, it seems to me uh, that explanations of alpha-synuclein pathology in Parkinson's disease The mechanism always starts with some overexpression or maybe misfolding of synuclein, and then some unknown number of steps in between, some gap in what we know, and then some series of things that go wrong, like mitochondrial failure or autophagy or excitotoxicity or something like that. And then, uh, or all of those things. So maybe all those things are are different pathways and each one of them is a different effect of alpha-synuclein, or maybe all of those things have some common denominator. And uh, you, in your work, it is implicated that actin cytoskeleton as possibly a common denominator in the mechanism of cell dysfunction in Parkinson's disease and maybe some other de- neurodegenerative diseases. So could you start just giving us an overview of what this you know, grand unified view of that causal link between synuclein and... So pathology.
1: Absolutely, I'd be delighted to. So as you mentioned, we do use the genetic model organism Drosophila, and one of the things that Drosophila has been really terrific at is identifying a cascade of events where one thing comes first, the next thing comes, and then another thing comes in a more or less linear pathway. Of course, biology isn't always going to be perfectly linear, but what genetics does allow us to do is to try to order events. And so we have been working to order events and, more importantly, probably understand Uh, the players um, that uh, are involved in each of these events and our idea based again on genetic um, gene-finding experiments in Drosophila is that the protein alpha-synuclein, which is a key player in Parkinson's disease, binds directly to the protein beta-spectrin, which is a very important um, organizer of the plasma membrane of the cell. We think then um, that through beta-spectrin, alpha-synuclein indirectly influences the actin cytoskeleton and the actin cytoskeleton has a number of important roles to play, but, but I, we would say one of the more important roles is to control the division and ultimate health of mitochondria. And when mitochondrial health declines, that then we think leads um, fairly quickly to neuronal cell death. So that's sort of a simple way we would order events based on our experiments using Drosophila.
0: So what's, what's going wrong with Actin in, um, uh, So maybe you say something about dynamic and stabilizing.
1: Right. So it, what we know in general about actin is actin dependent processes require uh, dynamic actin. So that requires you know actin, it, you can visualize actin as a, uh, a filament if you will. Um, and these actin filaments are used in the cell to move organelles for structural mm-hmm. stability. But it does appear that all of the functions of actin that we know about require that actin have some dynamics, that it becomes shorter, that it becomes longer, and that helps uh, with, you know, active maintenance of cell shape and it helps move organelles around. Or in the specific case of mitochondria, we think it helps recruit specialized proteins, particularly derp one that help to uh, help mitochondria to divide, which is a critical aspect of mitochondrial biology. So we believe it's really the dynamic uh, nature of actin that's required now. A lot of the work we do, however, is in in vivo preparations in the fly brain or in the mouse or rat brain or even the human brain where it's harder for us to look at the actual dynamics of actin. So what we often do is look at a sort of a single time point how stable actin is, how much is in filaments, how much is in monomers. And. and uh and, and so what we think, take? and so then we, so what we observe with alpha-synuclein in alpha-synuclein models of toxicity, that there's more stabilized actin, um, but we really think that the fundamental problem is likely to be that that stabilized actin is insufficiently dynamic; it can't respond to challenges and changes in the cell.
0: So you see it redistributed in the cell. The actin is would have been here and now it's there is
1: that well I mean, maybe that? i think we would view it in a little bit of a different fashion i think we would view um that we should have let's say on the mitochondrial surface that we should have an actively uh, actively turning over pool of actin but rather what we see is an excessively stabilized pool of actin
0: so you can just you can see that just by measuring how Long it takes for actin to rebuild itself, or that would apartment? be ideal.
1: We would love to do that. Those are experiments we really, really like to do in cell culture, but we haven't done those yet. But that would that would be the kind of experiment that one should do to really prove that point. So
0: how, do, how else could we measure the dynamic versus stabilized actin?
1: You need some kind of more live imaging. Uh-huh. So there, the indirect measures what we have done and a lot of the data that I showed to the group earlier today, mm-hmm. which is to simply measure the amount of F actin or G actin.:
0: mm-hmm. I see. so F actin is formed into filaments, and G actin is uh, monomeric monomeric. Yeah. so if there's a lot of dynamic actin, then there should be a lot of G actin available. I'm just trying to get like my, my simple <laughs> mind. Out. Yeah,
1: I, um, I'm not sure that necessarily numbers more of this or more of that. I would say it's more that the balance has changed in an appropriate way.
2: So, how much does it change from, neur- like one neuron type, to another? or even if you were to go into a non-neuronal cell type, I mean, are, 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 is the distribution of actin about the same? Is you it know, different? Yeah, that's actually
1: a fascinating question. I do not know that we know the answer to that. That would require uh, either isolating those cells Or performing um, some kind of live imaging to look at dynamics directly, and I don't know how much of that's been done. We have not done that. That's Mm -hmm. a really interesting question. Okay. Yeah.
0: So I understand how actin could be important for mitochondrial division. Why is mitochondrial division important for this cell?
1: Well, that's a great question, and I think it's that's not a question that's fully answered. But I think. Probably the leading hypothesis for that is that the way that you maintain a healthy balance of mitochondria is you mitochondria divide, and the mitochondrial mitochondria that um, have that are less functional are selectively cleared. I think that's everyone's favorite model about why mitochondrial dynamics is so important and it is very important. So we others, in fact, people at this institution have shown that if you prevent normal mitochondrial dynamics, normal co- mitochondrial division, that's very toxic to the cell. Um, so that's, that's really clear, I think. Um, why exactly? I think it's a little bit more of a hypothesis that that's needed to clear dysfunctional mitochondria to maintain a healthy mitochondrial population.
0: I see. So you'd have a bunch of broken mitochondria hanging around. Uh, yeah, can you a, see that? Yeah. I mean, can you see it, that the mitochondria are broken?
1: You, so the, the data that supports this idea that the reason that mitochondrial fission is important is to maintain a healthy balance of mitochondria is data that shows if you, um, if you either interfere with mitochondrial fission or you interfere with mitochondrial um, clearance, then you have a population of dysfunctional mitochondria that persists and sort of takes over the cell, if you will.
0: And the the story that mitochondrial dysfunction is really important in Parkinson's disease goes back a long way. A long time. A, yes. A big absolutely. History.
1: Long history. But,
0: uh, but I've never heard really a clear statement about what it means for that brain cell. I mean, we see neurons die in substantia nigra. Do they die because their mitochondria can't produce enough ATP? Or
1: yeah, so that you're asking a lot of really important questions there. So I'll start by answering the ones. That I know the answer okay, to, <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll confabulate on the later ones. The um, so it, the mitochondrial theory of Parkinson's disease and of Alzheimer's disease and of every other disease it, it has a checkered history. So if you look in any of these disorders, um, including more that we haven't explicitly spoken of, you'll typically find abnormal mitochondria. But I think, um, and you guys can you know the, these stories very well too. You can certainly chime in. But my my. Fear feeling is that um, until there were genetic mutations that specifically implicated mitochondria, in the case of Parkinson's disease, mitochondrial dynamics, and in the disease process, I think that there were really schools of thought that said, you know, you're seeing these mitochondria, they're definitely abnormal. Yes, we believe that, but that's because the cell's sick. Right? Uh-huh. As opposed to the cell dying because the mitochondria are abnormal. To me, and you guys have, I'm sure, your and own they- feeling about this, to me, the turning point was um, finding genetic mutations, and particularly in common diseases like Parkinson's disease, uh, where those genetic mutations clearly implicated mitochondria because they were mitochondrial mm-hmm. proteins and they were important for mitochondrial function. You know, before then, there were diseases like um, primary mitochondrial diseases where the genetic mutations were in um, genes that encode mitochondrial respiratory chain components, for instance. So of course you knew in those rare diseases that mitochondrial dysfunction was the problem, but I don't think we really knew in common diseases that it was a cause rather than a side effect. But you may may have your own take on it. So
2: the thing that always concerns me is when you're looking at mitochondrial dysfunction, I, I feel like it can cause an increase in oxidative stress, but it can go the other way as well. The oxidative stress can affect the mitochondria. Absolutely, yeah. And, and so the thing that scares me in trying to understand diseases is how possible is it that it's going in one direction in one individual and going the other direction in another individual, but but they, they both have increased oxidative stress and increased mitochondrial dysfunction, but which one caused which and can it be different
1: well, that's the problem with common diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. You know, you, you emphasize and I emphasized earlier genetic causes, but what neither of us said is that most people with Parkinson's and Alzheimer's don't have single gene penetrant mutations that are causing the disease. They have important genetic influences and we understand a little better through GWAS those now, but still they're at some level sporadic. And so what you say could exactly be true. Things could be different one patient to the next but that's going to make it really hard to do science on them. But maybe, maybe you have to take that challenge on.
0: So mitochondria do a lot of different things. So you were just mentioning oxidative stress. Maybe you were thinking about reactive oxygen, uh, oxygen. species, yes. and, uh, which can be directly damaging to the cell. That's one, definitely one way mitochondria could harm the host cell. There are others, though, like calcium...
1: Many Disposition others.
0: is yeah. very important. Just.
1: Uh, and even, you know, with oxidative stress, we tend to talk about that as being something negative, but of course, um, uh, you know, there's important signaling that goes on with reactive free oxygen species, mm-hmm. you know, that's very important in normal biology.
3: In addition to that, I think the more. I think another prevalent view is that it's not a gain of toxicity, it's basically about the fitness of the mitochondria activity. Eventually, it's going to be you know, cell, the neuron of fitness, like a mitochondria, even though, even though it doesn't increase the ROS or other toxic molecule, like it lost the normal function because of that the dynamics is broken or some structure is broken, pathway is broken, it cannot function well supporting the neural function, for example. So then the consequence is that the cell it's going to be more vulnerable to the additional stress, you know, that's what, you know, we, uh, uh, my goal is actually previously to uh, talk about like what we call the 2 hypothesis. So it's going to be a more vulnerable, some stress is usually okay, cell can endure, but eventually it's going to take the heat and then go to the, you know, degeneration because of, you know, cells are more vulnerable because of their mitochondrial activity, it doesn't maintain their cell, uh, neuronal fitness well. So, so it just weakens, weakens right. the Right, Yes, weaken huh? the cell, right.
0: And then the thing that actually kills it could be anything.
3: Right, right.
0: Wow, that's kind of uh, distressing from a scientific mm-hmm. point of view because <laughs> it's a
1: multifactorial yeah. like, you know, hypothesis of yeah. these disorders, which has almost got to be true at some level. I, yeah. I think
3: that's what you know we can see a lot of heterogeneous, you know, multiple event or different event, different pathway related to the mitochondria. We can see in that uh, modern study because because of that kind of thing is more complicated as we are all kind of talking about it, you know, because it's so uh, uh, multiple even like, you know, happen in different cells, even the same animal probably or same patient. So I think it's not just a one-way uh, 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 explanation or one way one single mechanism to can explain that how mitochondria contribute to the pathogenesis, for example, like Parkinson or the R7 disease, so that's what I'm thinking.
0: Well, you mentioned some other things that are affected by actin. that also sounded like they could be uh, deadly for the cell, like control of the sodium, potassium ATPase, mm-hmm. right? Right. Which seems independent of the mitochondria, at least by mechanism, right? So actin is somehow
1: yeah. So you know, in it's that. interesting you bring this up, and maybe this isn't exactly what you want to talk about. Um I mean, you can stop me if that's true, but you know, I think we, you know originally got on to actin through the genetics from the fruit flies as we mentioned. And you know we thought that that would be an important contribution to just characterize what was happening with actin. If there were changes, that would be good. If we could show those changes were meaningful for the toxicity. We thought that would be a contribution where we expected we'd really run into trouble. And I sort of thought we might never really get anywhere, honestly, is because actin does so many things in the cell. How were we ever going to show that any particular downstream target was important? Mm-hmm. But fortunately, we didn't let that stop us. I mean, you, you might hear, you might think that, and you're just like, okay, I'm not going to tackle that. But I'm really glad we didn't stop there because, in fact, it was possible to show that particular targets are important. Are they the only targets? Probably not. And you saw from the talk today that you know we're thinking beyond a particular target. But the first target we identified was mitochondria, and again, with the power of genetics, we can say it is a target and it's a meaningful target because when we correct that particular target, the animal gets better. So it's not the only target, but it's an important target. And I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the things genetics really allows you to do. Um, So probably there will be other important targets. I I didn't show you too much of this. In fact, maybe not even enough for you to really get the story, but a second target of actin that we've shown is autophagy. So we've shown that actin directly controls autophagy and that the deficits in autophagy that occur in at least the Parkinson's model, perhaps also in Alzheimer's model, but at least in the Parkinson's model are through actin. So if we correct the actin defect, the autophagy defect is also corrected. So again, a second target, um, and and we showed that that was um, directly through autophagosome maturation. Actin is known to control that process. Uh, so you know there's two targets that we can see. So you know we're never probably going to get to all the heterogeneity and all the actin targets, but I think we can make some meaningful progress on the major ones. Mm-hmm.
0: To me, that is something very satisfying about the ubiquity of, of actin, and because. As an outsider, I listen to that cell biologist talking about diseases. And you talk to a cell biologist who's interested in autophagy, and all the diseases are autophagy. Talk to somebody who's interested in mitochondria, all the diseases are mitochondria. And it seems like every target that anybody studies is a target that seems to do something. And you go, wow, you know, it's just like whatever you study, whatever you look for, that you find it there. and, and And so it makes me a little cynical, but in this case, if it turns out that it's the cytoskeleton, then it's not surprising.
1: So that is exactly what we think. We think that, you're absolutely right, you look at the patient tissue, and we talked Uh about how so important it is to go back to the patient tissue, you know, as limited as it is Mm -hmm. is for causality, but if you look at the patient tissue, mitochondrial abnormal, autophagy Mm -hmm. is abnormal, and so it is really very satisfying to identify a pathway that's controlling both of those processes because it gives you some sense that you're starting to understand why things are happening. And then, of course, with the experimental model organism, you can say it's causal, which I think is critical.
0: So maybe it'd be good to dig in a little bit farther into the the mechanics of these molecules. So it's not just actin. It's uh, also a couple of other cytoskeletal molecules. And in fact, alpha-synuclein doesn't immediately bind to it. Actin? Well, we yes, thought
1: it we might, know. you know, people had suggested that, but we didn't see that. So, our hypothesis is really that the actin effect of synuclein on actin is somewhat indirect, although only through one additional binding partner, and that's beta spectrin. Yeah.
0: So, what is beta spectrin?
1: So, so, spectrins are large molecules um, that are uh, one thinks most about these um, large networks under the mm-hmm. surface of the cell, the subplasma membrane network, and we think about them mostly traditionally in terms of maintaining the integrity of the cell, the shape of the cell. Um, and then, but, but they do other things, and so one of the important things that they do is bind proteins like Ancrin and through Ancrin. Some of the details of this are a little bit unclear, exactly who's binding to who. But in general, what we know is through the, the sort of cytos- the scaffolding that Spectrin makes the binding of ankerin, and then the subsequent binding of that complex to plasma membrane proteins. That um, we two things are important there. One is the compartmentalization of the plasma membrane proteins, and the other thing is um, that the the recycling of those plasma membrane proteins is controlled. So those are some of the major things we know that spectrum does.
0: So compartmentalization means that they're in the right place, in the right membrane place, they're yeah, next to their
1: they're where they're partners. supposed to be. In the plasma membrane, and the right amount of them is on the plasma membrane, as opposed to getting taken up into the cell.
0: So, is there any indication, that, and that in cynically, in? might mess that up and that molecules are Well right so out.
1: that's so we that's why you know that initial observation that alpha-synuclein is binding to spectrin made us ask the question okay so we know some of the things spectrin does let's go look at those things let's go look at the proteins that anchor and anchors in the plasma membrane and look at the distribution so we looked at the distribution of one of the major um, A major plasma membrane protein of known function, sodium potassium ATPase, and we saw that that protein did not maintain its normal localization when we expressed alpha sinuclein. And also, the function of that protein was abnormal in that the membrane potential of the cell was altered.
0: That seems catastrophic for neurons to have that well, particular. Well, the neurons are in mess.
1: bad shape in people, in flies, and um, to some extent in a, in a cells from patients that we grow in culture to better study the process. Yes, it's catastrophic. We, we the people with Parkinson's disease are have catastrophic. Lo- the neurons die. You can't get any more catastrophic than that.
2: So. How much are these processes involved in just the actual neurotransmission and and release of neurotransmitters?
1: Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. Of course, with um, alpha-synuclein, the alpha-synuclein is a synaptic-associated protein. It's closely um, in in the same place as synaptic vesicles, although it probably doesn't necessarily bind directly. Um, And... People have different ideas about that. I mean, some people think, as you guys know, that Parkinson's disease is a synaptopathy and that the fundamental problem in Parkinson's disease is alterations in transmitter release. Mm -hmm. Some people feel strongly about that. There's a certain appeal to that idea because that's what synuclein normally does. Um, I think our data has tended to suggest a little bit more of a a gain-of-function mechanism in the sense that alpha-synuclein gets mislocalized from the synapse where it normally is to the cell body where it starts to impinge on localization of the sodium potassium ATPase or, uh, as we discussed earlier, the various um, sub-membrane uh, regions that are defined by different spectrum isoforms in human neurons uh, and mitochondria. But I would say one thing that really does intrigue me about this new interaction that we've discovered about alpha-synuclein spectrum, spectrin um, there is actually a pool of spectrin at the presynapse. That's not what people, where people normally study spectrin. People normally study spectrin postsynaptically, But there, there are a couple of reports that have shown pretty convincingly, I think, that spectrin is at the presynapse. So I think it's a very intriguing question as to whether that interaction of alpha-synuclein and spectrin contributes to the normal function of alpha-synuclein in the presynapse, the total speculation. Um, and th- that brings me to a, a larger hypothesis that I've had for quite some time, which is that it is abnormal interactions with normal and in- normal interacting partners that underlies disease pathogenesis. Um, so I would speculate in the case of tau. One of the things tau normally, you can you, you can get into this with me because you know tau, but I'm going to speculate that one of the things tau normally does is actually act in vivo as an actin cross-linking agent. It has some physiologic function, although I don't know what that is. Of course, it's hard enough to know what the microtubule physiologic function is of tau, um, but that that normal function of tau is being co-opted in disease states into abnormal actin stabilization. And similarly, I think it's a really interesting idea Mm. that alpha-synuclein normally does interact with spectrin. So we don't, although we know where alpha-synuclein is, it's been really hard to understand exactly what it does in normal physiology. Maybe that's because it's interacting with spectrin, um, and maybe that's the key to understanding the normal physiology. But that process goes awry when, in disease states, alpha-synuclein is relocated um, into the cell body, potentially into the axon, um, and starts to interfere in, in with the spectrin interactions there, which it's normally not a dominant partner in those different localizations in the cell.
0: So in, the, in this kind of way of thinking, the lily- Body is not really part of the pathogenetic genetic mechanism. Again, that, that's
1: highly debated. Our data has always tended to suggest that Lewy bodies are a large sinks that are more that are protective that may be soaking up abnormal uh, forms of aggregated alpha synuclein. But that's a topic that's highly debated in the field. Many people would take um, you know issue with that and have other opinions. Um, but I think to me, it's always been hard to understand, you guys can get into this with me if you want, how that huge structure is really in a meaningful way interfering with the normal biological functions of these proteins. But I, but I know not everyone feels that way. So
2: I, I've always looked at it as, as both protective and eventually toxic. So I mean, well, with talent neurofibrillary tangles, you can imagine, that, that taking the bad towel, polymerizing it, and um, sequestering it somewhere in the neuron keeps it from doing bad things. But the neuron can only take so much of that. I mean, at some point, it just starts to occupy all of the space and the other things there.
1: And potentially soak up things like proteasomes that the cell needs. Yeah. So there's many potential mechanisms. So um, I,
2: I think that, that there's every possibility that early on in the process, um, aggregation is completely protective, but if it's allowed to go on for too yeah. long, it, it can have detrimental
1: Doesn't need to effects. be one way or another, certainly. Right. And
2: um, part of the problem, though, is when we look at the brain, oftentimes, um, we're looking at the survivors. And and so the ones where tau yeah. killed the neurons are not there anymore, yeah. so there's nothing to look at. Um, yeah. Yeah. unless you're lucky enough to find a ghost tangle or something like that.
1: Right, but and there's been
2: a ghost tangle. I a ghost tangle. A, a tangle that remains after the neuron dies, so ah. th- it's there's no so neuron it's
1: left it's in <laughs> Yeah, and there's getting, been some data from people like Brad Hyman, you know, the numbers aren't large on this, but to suggest that when you look, when you can look dynamically in an animal models, you know, it, there is some evidence that those neurons that have tangles are actually doing better than the mm-hmm. ones
3: that don't. Yeah. So in your fly model, can you see the wee body or...?
1: Yeah, so the one of the things that's been great about the fly model is I don't want to call them Louis bodies, you know, because I don't uh-huh. want to offend anyone, but um, <laughs> they really do have inclusions that have all the things you'd want to see in a fly for a Louis body. They're really fibrillar, the fibrils are the right size, and they have other um, components that people have known for a long time uh, that Louis bodies have. So they're there's been a recent flurry of interest to in the idea that Louis bodies not just not only have the office synuclein fibrils, but they have other membranes, um, components of mitochondria, which of course the EM people knew for years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And so the flies recapitulate that they seem to you know have some peripheral um, membranes attached to them, so they do have very nice inclusion bodies.
3: So can you can you like track what make them? you know, some clear view that, like, you know, the chronological sequence that... Yeah,
1: know, uh, so, you know, the so flies, of course, I love them, and I like to think they're great for everything. The brains are pretty small, so to yeah, do dynamic yeah. imaging, that's kind of hard in the fly brain, yeah, especially for those small inclusions. Okay. I think we maybe oh. better leave that to the mouse people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but,
3: but, but, what what's what, 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 what your idea? You know, it seems to me that, you know, like, Louis Louis is... More like a you know, consequence, like the you know, end stage of the, the whole process. The marker, yeah. So like in you know, a process you just mentioned, like you know interaction with the acting uh, spectrum, and then eventually the acting a uh, uh, process problem. That's kind of likely only event, like you know actual causal mechanism, and then as a consequence that we body going to be can be formed or it's going to be you know doesn't matter actually separate even.
1: Well, we don't think it's separate, you know, and at least in experiments, um, when we rescue toxicity, there's more Lewy bodies, more inclusions, and they get larger. Oh. So that that's part of the reason that we've always viewed them as potentially a protective sink. Although, as Chris says, there's no need to see it one way or another. Both things can happen at different times.
0: There's also a, a notion that that sort of fibrillary form of Synuclein can propagate from one cell there is. to that's the other. Sort of the
1: more, is this um,
0: something that you have investigated or you have had, So that's you know? a
1: hugely important topic for many, many investors investigators in Parkinson's disease, but not something we work on. Uh, we, you know, we were interested to see if we would see that in our flies. We did some experiments and didn't, wasn't obvious that that was occurring. Um, the prop- propagation experiments can be challenging to interpret because. Uh, you have to make sure that what you're seeing is actual propagation as opposed to simply a little bit of expression in the cell that you're arguing is propagating and we could never really convince ourselves of that so we don't have good evidence for that in the flies but I'm certain certainly it could occur we and we know anyway,
0: you're overexpressing kind of sort of generally and universally, right? So
1: well, was... so what we did, and of course for those experiments, is we would um, where we tried to see if we might see it is express only in one cell population uh-huh. and then look at the synaptically uh-huh. connected cells or other surrounding cells and see if we saw a propagation. Well, it um,
0: seems like a really good experiment, a really good test you're not confident. It,
1: we We it, didn't see it, but you know, <laughs> but that but it also isn't that easy to see necessarily. So people in mammalian systems had to work hard to see it. Um, yeah. We may not have worked hard enough. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, My pleasure, thank you, you, know, you for having me.
0: And Chris and hung out. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this has been neuroscientist Doc Shah. <laughs>